Howdy. Try to switch it up. Give you a good morning. Give you a howdy. Top of the morning to you. Oh, wait. <laughs> Wrong country. <laughs> it's funny, whenever I went over to Ireland, they said, you know, lots of uh, Irish things here in the United States that they don't do over there. And top of the morning to you was one of them. I asked them about that. About, and uh, I lived over there, and they said, we don't say that. And I said, oh. I said, well, you don't even use Irish spring? Soap, you know, uh, come on. You know what I'm talking about. They used to have the Irish commercials way back in the day. No, we don't know what that is either. No Lucky Charms? Nope, nope. None of that stuff over here. So, very interesting, isn't it? Clever marketing. Nevertheless, in this great 56th Psalm, David asked the question on two occasions in just 13 short verses, what can man do to me? What can man do to me? Quite a lot, actually. In fact, I have a brief sampling from the news headlines since we just met last Sunday. On Friday, a lone gunman opened fire in a FedEx facility in Indianapolis, killing himself, making a total of eight people dead. Protests in riots in Minnesota have been continuing on now for seven straight nights and have led to over 100 arrests. An 18-year-old young man was arrested with a loaded AK-47 in Times Square, New York City. A manhunt is now underway in Kenosha, Wisconsin for an armed and dangerous individual suspected in slaying three people and injuring two others in a bar fight gone bad. In Canton, Ohio, a man walked into a Bob Evans restaurant and killed his ex-girlfriend who was a waitress there. The U.S. Border Patrol nabbed three convicted sex offenders in just two days on our southern border. A man stabbed a woman to death in Los Angeles, California, just after being released from parole for serving a 30-year sentence for stabbing a different woman to death in the year 1983. What can man do unto me? Quite a lot indeed. As of April 1st this year, there have been at least 131 murders in Chicago, Illinois. That's a 34% increase from this same time last year. It's worth noting that Chicago is but one city and many like it. Truly, this is just the tip of the iceberg of what goes on all over the globe all the time. We're reminded of the words of the great 19th century poet, Mr. William Wordsworth, when he wrote of, quote, man's inhumanity to man, end quote. Man's inhumanity to man. What can man do to me? Well, he can destroy my reputation. He can murder, he can steal, he can kill, he can maim, he can injure, he can hate, and all sorts of horrible things. But David gives an answer to this question of what can man do to me 
In a way, he gives an answer that none of us would have ever expected. The answer to what can man do to me in Psalm 56 is absolutely nothing. Nothing. Man can do nothing to me, especially when God Almighty himself is for us and God himself stands against our hateful enemies. Have you ever been afraid, desperate, alone? If you have, then this psalm is for you. Psalm 56 is not merely all about feelings of fear and loneliness. It is an encouragement to trust God in faith. And God can and God will give you victory over those dark feelings and emotions. It is important that we understand the historical background of this great psalm first. And then we shall look at three main points after that. Number one, the historical background. Number two, the voice of fear. Number three, the voice of faith. And number four, the victory in Christ. Number one, a historical background. Number two, the voice of fear. Number three, the voice of faith. And number four, the victory in Christ. There's a little bit of historical background for the 56th Psalm. Live like a king, someone might say. Someone will say, well, it was easy for David to say that man can do nothing to me because he was a king. If he was being bullied or harassed, he could simply command his army to take care of the situation, to stop the attackers. Or David could simply retreat into the great and high walls of the city of Jerusalem and find defense and safety behind its fortified walls. Someone may say, we're not as lucky as David. We don't have all those things at our disposal. Well, there's a key to interpreting Psalm 56 given to us in the title. The title for this psalm tells us that David had none of the luxuries of being a king before or when this psalm was written. Notice the little inscription. It says, of David when the Philistines seized him in Gath. Of David when the Philistines seized him in Gath. So give me just a moment to work through some of the complexities of the historical background of Psalm 56. You remember back in Psalm 52 when we discussed the betrayal that David had received uh, at the hands of the evil man Doeg? You'll remember that the Ahimelech priest of Nob and all the other priests of that great village were slain and butchered along with their families because of Doag's betrayal of David. But from the time that David left the village of Nob to the time that Doag reports what happened at Nob to Saul, there was a significant lapse of time. And it was during this significant lapse of time that there are two more significant events in the life and history of David that are recorded for us in the book of 1 Samuel chapters 21 and chapters 22. Two important incidents occurred between David leaving Nob and Doag betraying David in the presence of King Saul. The first one was David flees to the Philistine city of Gath. You remember that this is the instance where 
Uh, David goes to Gath and he behaves like a madman with spit running down his beard and talking and screaming at himself. And the King Achish of the city of Gath looks at him and thinks that he's completely uh, flown the coop. And uh, the king of uh, Gath says, get this man out of my presence. He's uh, lost his mind. And so it was all big show. David knew that his back was against the wall and that he was being chased by King Saul and that it wasn't going to work out too well for him in Gath. And so David behaves like a madman and the king says, get this fellow out of here. The second event is that David leaves. So David leaves Nob. He goes to Gath. Then he acts like a madman in the presence of the king Achish of Gath, the Philistine king. And then what happens after he leaves there is he goes to the cave of Adullam. And this is an important event because David thought that he was going to find refuge in Nob and he couldn't. He thought he was going to find refuge in Gath and he couldn't. And finally he lands in the cave. And there in the cave are waiting for him his brothers and the 400 mighty valiant men that will ultimately make up David's army. Now, David begins the process at Adullam of collecting and gathering together these 400 mighty men that will be with him through the remainder of his wilderness journeyings. Here's an important contextual note to make. Psalm 56 was written about David's experience at Gath after he left Nob and before he got to the cave of Adullam. This was the in-between time in David's life and ministry where he had no army. He Remember, he didn't even have any food. Ahimelech had to give him the bread of the presence from the tabernacle of the Lord. He had no weapons. Uh, Ahimelech had to, give him the, had to give him the sword of Goliath, his former enemy, which he slain. And it was at this very dark time in David's life when he writes the 56th Psalm. Remember, in between Nob and Adullam, he acts like a madman in the presence of the Philistine king. I want you to notice that there's three important points about this time period in the life of David. Number one, David felt lonely. Number two, David felt despair. Number three, David felt fearful. During this time, he had no soldiers. He had no food. He had no weapons. He had this giant Philistine, uh, you know, Goliath sword. And that's all he had. When David arrived at Nob, he literally came empty-handed. When you usually, and you and I usually think of David and his wilderness wanderings when he's running from Saul, we usually think of David with his 400 valiant mighty men. But this is a time, a space of time, a segment in the life of David where he didn't have anybody with him. He was alone. He had no one. According to 1 Samuel chapter 22, it was not until after he left both Nob and Gath that his soldiers were waiting for him at Adullam, at the cave. At this time, David was completely alone. He had no one by his side, and he was isolated from all of his supporters. Secondly, David felt despair. 
Let us situate ourselves in his situation, in his predicament. Gath was a Philistine city. It was the hometown of Goliath. Can you imagine this? Can you imagine David leaving the, the village of Nob, the comfort of the priest of Ahimelech that was his dear friend, he receives just enough bread to, to eat and he receives a sword that was the former weapon of his adversary whom he defeated. Now he's got the sword of Goliath and he's going to Goliath's hometown of Gath. What is he thinking? There's only two things that David could have been thinking. Either he was prideful and arrogant or he was in such dark despair that he felt he had no other options. What do you think the people of Gath would and how would they have reacted when they seen old David strutting into town with Goliath's sword on his side? This Goliath whom David slew was the champion of the Philistines. This was their greatest warrior. And David slew him on the field of battle. What a low time in the life and ministry of David. The sword would have been so big, it would have been so noticeable, that as soon as David walked into town, they would have known exactly who he was. What we surmise is that it was feelings of hopeless desperation which caused David to go down to Gath. To quote the great commentator, Mr. Derek Kidners, he says, quote, To have fled from Saul to Gath of all places, the hometown of Goliath took the courage of despair. It measured David's estimate of his standing with his people. David's attempt to find safety in Gath was not successful, of course, and Kidner adds, this has failed, and David is now doubly encircled. He has enemies knocking at both the front and the back door now. He's in the enemy fortified town of Gath. He has the sword of Goliath. The people know that he's there. He has Saul chasing him. What a mess. Thirdly, David was fearful. The fear that David felt was, is very evident when you read 1 Samuel. When the future king of Israel arrived in Gath, the people reported to Achish, the king of that city, Isn't this David the king of the land? Isn't he the one they sing about in their dances? Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. This is 1 Samuel 21 verse 11. 1 Samuel chapter 21, verse 11. Remember, the songs that they sang about David, David slain his tens of thousands. Those tens of thousands were Philistines. And one of the tens of thousands that David slain was Goliath, the great champion of the nation. And here you have David coming into the city. They know who he is. They see the sword. And he's encircled roundabout with enemies on every side. He has no rest. He's lonely. He's desperate. He's fearful. 1 Samuel 21 verse 12 should be easy to understand at this point. David took these words to heart. Talking about the song. David uh, Saul slain his thousands. David slain his tens of thousands. 
David took these words to heart and was very much afraid of Achish, king of Gath. That's in 1 Samuel chapter 21 and verse 12. David resorted to pretending and acting as if he was insane so King Achish would cast David away from his presence, and it worked. Here you have David acting like a madman. He's foaming at the mouth and spit running down his beard. He's screaming all sorts of horrible things. And the king says, get this madman out of my presence. Now, I want to read to you Psalm 56 verses 3 and 4 because now we have the context of this great psalm. When I am afraid... I will trust in you. In God whose word I praise, in God I trust, I will not be afraid. What can mortal man do to me? It was David's very much afraid fear of Achish, king of Gath, that caused him to come to know, realize, and understand that if God was for David, no one could really be against David. The great British evangelist of yesteryear, Mr. George Whitfield, preached great revival meetings in the colonial colonies of the United States before the Revolutionary War. And one of his most famous quotes that I've always found to be a blessing is, you are invincible until God is done with you. Think about that. And, you know, David came to realize that. David came to realize that. The voice of fear. Even though the words of the great Bible teacher and commentator of yesteryear, Mr. J.J. Stewart Perrone, concerning the 56th Psalm are true, he says, the victory rather than the struggle of faith is what Psalm 56 is about. But just because Psalm 56 is about the victory and not the struggle of faith doesn't mean that there's not strong notes of fear that we find in this great psalm. Notice the fury and the relentlessness of the attack that David faces. He says, be gracious to me, verse 1. Verses 1 and 2, the fury of the attack. Be gracious to me, O God, for man tramples on me all day long, and attacker oppresses me. My enemies trample on me all day long, for many attack me proudly. Notice the repeated phrases twice over in both verses. The words trample, the words attack, and the words all day long are repeated twice in two verses. What does this mean? In our modern vernacular, we may say something like this. I am overwhelmed, simply overwhelmed, because no matter what direction I turn, they are always after me, always after me, pursuing me, always pursuing me, day and night, all day long. There's a, there's a desperation in the prayer that David offers up in Psalm 56. And this tells us something about our enemies, doesn't it? The voice of fear is a furious voice. The voice of fear is a relentless voice. It doesn't stop all day long. It will trample you. It will attack you. It comes after you day and night. It grips you. We have a great enemy, and that great enemy is fear, and our enemies play on our fears, don't they? 
our great spiritual enemies in heavenly places, as Paul says in the book of Ephesians. And they are many and they are mighty, the Bible tells us. And this voice of fear, it's a loud voice. It's a furious voice. It's a relentless voice. Overwhelming, attacking, after you all the time, David says, day and night, all day. If you're David, future king of Israel, not only are these voices furious, they're relentless all the time. But notice I, something I found to be very, very fascinating. Verses 5 through 9. But we'll, we'll read verses 5 and 6. He said, All day long they twist my words. They are always plotting to harm me. They conspire, they lurk, they watch my steps eager to take my life. The fact that David's enemies wanted to kill him was bad enough. But the thing that seems to have bothered David the most was the fact that these enemies, it wasn't that they just sought his life. It was almost as if David understood and could sort of reconcile that fact. But what bothered him the most at the core of his being was the reality that his enemies twisted his words. That they made it out to sound like David was involved in a mutiny, a rebellion, an insurrection against Saul. They're constantly lying about what David says. They're misrepresenting. They're taking his words out of context. They're twisting what he says. David doesn't like that. That hurts him the most. It's one thing for our enemies to be furious. It's another thing for them to be relentless all day long. But it adds insult to injury whenever our enemies twist our words and make it out like we said something that we didn't. Some years ago, uh, we had a dear lady. I normally don't tell illustrations from my own life. I learned to do that the hard way. <laughs> but uh, some years ago, a lady, obviously very wealthy, had uh, contacted us about buying a dog. They wanted one of our dogs. Many people do. And uh, this lady called, and she wanted one, and we agreed to enter into a business transaction with her. We had a dog that we were going to give her, and things didn't work out like we wanted, things that were out of our control, things that we had no control over, and things that she had no control over. But this person, whenever we decided, well, it's probably not as good of an idea that we give you one of our little doggies because we're not able to make you happy. That was a nice way of us saying, we're not interested in selling you a puppy. This lady became extremely angry and said horrible things that were, some of what she said were untruth, some of what she said were twisted truth, and some of what she said was true. But what happened was, was the things that I said were being used and twisted and turned around and things I said were being taken out of context, misunderstood, misrepresented. 
Now, we're sorry that it didn't work out. We're actually glad that it didn't. <laughs> but ultimately, what you have to realize is, is that people and our enemies, very often they wait for us to say something so they can twist and manipulate it. And what they do is they twist and manipulate what we say so they can make themselves look good. They're the victim. They're, they have the moral high ground. This is the big thing nowadays. Everyone wants the moral high ground. You have to be very careful with wanting the moral high ground. They were twisting what David said and using his words against him. They were misrepresenting what he said, taking his words and statements out of context. And for some reason, somehow, some way, that hurt him the most. The only thing I can figure about that is David knows that if they take his life from him, he's going to go be with the Lord. I will dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, he said in the 23rd Psalm. But while he's here trying to do justice and trying to do the right thing, they're misrepresenting everything he's saying, twisting it and using it against him. It tears his heart out, breaks his heart. I want you to notice the goodness of God, however, sprinkled in with all this. Verses 7 and 8. For their crime will they escape? Question. In wrath cast down the peoples, O God. Look at verse 8. You have kept count of my tossings. Put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? Did you just hear what David said? He said that all of his troubles, all of his tossings, all of his problems, all of his weeping, every prayer that he's ever uttered, every tear that he's ever cried, God has been recording all of that. And David envisions a bottle that is filled with his tears. David envisions a scroll, a book whereby God writes down every one of David's prayers. This is something that struck me so deeply as I studied this great psalm. David confesses that God knows everything he has gone through and will ever go through. And God remembers all of David's troubles. How long does God remember them for? For an eternity. And you know, I thought about something. I thought about all the tears that before I knew the Lord and all the heartache and all the trouble and all the horrible things that I did and the horrible things that God forgave me of. And all the enemy attacks that I've experienced that I cried out to God. And it occurred to me that God has never forgotten prayers that I prayed that I have even forgotten. God has stored up, figuratively speaking... All the tears I have cried, even after my cheeks have long been dry. And the things that I have long forgotten about, God hasn't. And God does care. And God does hear. 
How much? He writes everything down and he stores everything up. And I believe one day we're going to find out exactly how much he did care. That he heard every word and he heard every syllable of every word. And he heard every word that we spoke and he heard every word that we did not speak. All of our groanings, all of our crying, all of our trials and troubles that we took to God. God wrote them down and God stored them up so that one day he could show us. His incredible love for us. Very staggering piece of scripture. The voice of faith in verses 4, 10, and 11. Let me read them for you. Psalm 56, verse 4. In God, whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? Verse 10. In God, whose word I praise, in the Lord, whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. And what can man do to me? We have observed David and his many fears. Let's see his incredible example of faith. Confidence in God. David is able to answer the question of what can man do to me with a resounding nothing at all because David puts his faith in God and not man. David's faith is not in himself. David's faith is not in his 400 men. David's faith is not in King Achish or Ahimelech, priest of Nob, or anybody else. David's faith is in God alone. And it's when we put our faith in God alone that God floods our heart and life with great confidence. Do we trust God like we see David trusting God? If we say that we have trusted God for our salvation, then that is the greatest thing that we could ever entrust to God. But do we trust God for the lesser things? Do we trust God for the lesser things? Such as deliverance from loneliness. I recently read an article that Americans are experiencing greater feelings of isolation and loneliness than ever before and what a message there is for us and them in the 56th psalm do we trust god for deliverance from desperation from fear from anxieties if we are gods if we belong to god god has promised to take care of us Psalm 37, verse 5, I was young and now I'm old, yet have I never foreseen the righteous forsaken, nor his seed begging bread. God has promised to take care of us. The psalm immediately before Psalm 56 and Psalm 55, 22, cast your cares on the Lord and he will sustain you. That one was so good that Peter quotes it in the New Testament in his book. The Apostle Paul wrote to the Philippians in Philippians 4.19, My God will meet all your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. What a wonderful truth. Confidence in God's word. Three times in two verses we have the phrase, In whose word I praise. Whose word I praise. When was the last time that we praised God's word? Does the Bible say to do that? David did. Matter of fact, David does it three times in this one psalm. What does that mean? Exactly what part of the word of God did David have available to him? Well, 
If you study Old Testament history long enough, you'll figure out that David had the Pentateuch. That's the first five books. David might have had Joshua and Judges. He probably did. David may have had the book of Ruth. But you remember, 1 Samuel was written by the prophet that bears the name of the book, and that's the one that is going to anoint David king. So all the other stuff that comes after David didn't have, David might have had six or seven Bible books available to him. And it wasn't like today where he can pull out his iPhone and have 50 different translations to look from. He would have had to have memorized the Bible. He would have had to go to a temple or to a tabernacle to hear the Bible or read the Bible. If David was able to overcome his violent enemies that sought to encircle him, take his life, and slander him, if David could find confidence to overcome those enemies with like seven books of the Bible, how many enemies do you think you and I can overcome with 66 books of the Bible? God led David to victory with a far dimmer light than what you and I have. He didn't even have the New Testament. You said, yeah, but they had visions and dreams and blah, blah, blah. Well, well. I think we have a more sure word of prophecy is what the Bible tells us. We have the Bible itself. But specifically, David had a word from God, didn't he? In 1 Samuel chapter 16, verses 1 through 13, David is given a promise by the prophet Samuel that he will be the true king of Israel. This promise made by God through Samuel to David was probably far away as David was hiding from Saul in the cave and his enemies are encircling him on all sides. But David still believed God. And God led David to the victory with far less truth than what you and I have available to us. And finally, the victory in Christ. This is so precious. I'm glad I got to this part. Verses 12 and 13. I must perform my vows to you, O God. I will remember thank offerings to you. For you have delivered my soul from death. Yes, my feet from falling, that I may walk before God. Look at this last phrase. In the light of life. And that I may walk before God in the light of life. When we go to God with all of our fears, anxieties, desperations, discouragements, we cry out to God and we fellowship with God and we claim the promises of God, we praise the word of God, we have confidence in God, we remain God-centered, what happens is incredible faith begins to flood our heart and life. This is the pattern over and over again in the Psalms. It begins with a lament it begins with agony and it ends in praise. Apparently, Jesus Christ thought very highly of the 56th Psalm because he quotes it in his earthly ministry. Listen to John chapter 8 and verse 12. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. The light of life Jesus is quoting from Psalm 56. And if David had the light of life and he didn't even have Christ to the fullest extent like what we have Christ, how much more light in our life can we have? 
The light of life is Christ himself who lives inside the believer in the form of the Holy Spirit of God. The great Alexander McLaren said, quote, The really living are they who live in Jesus, and the real light of the living is the sunshine that streams on those who thus live because they live in Him. End quote. Isn't that wonderful? It's right there in the 56th Psalm. If you really want to move away from your feelings of anxiety, fear, desperation, loneliness, and darkness, then come to God through Christ and bask in the sunshine of God's loving grace. Then you, like David, will find yourself answering the question, What can man do unto me? With the same answer that David answered, Nothing. In God I trust, I will not be afraid. What can man do to me?